are going to start the City of Iowa City Work Session for May 16th, 2023. And the I want to make sure that Councilor Don can hear us and we can hear him. I can hear you. Thank you. Awesome. Welcome. And welcome to counselors and everyone here in the audience. We're going to go to our first agenda item, evaluate the feasibility and funding sources needed for a zero fare transit system. And Darian is just going to jump on up here. So welcome. Good evening. Afternoon, I suppose. Not quite there yet, but we're getting there. Hello, Mayor, counselors. Very excited to be here tonight to talk about transit. Rachel, I may need your help with the projector. <laughs> and we see it up here. We can see it here, oh, Darian. So okay. if you can see it, oh, go, go Great, ahead. I can see it. Um, again, I'm Darian Nagel-Gam, Director of Transportation Services. Very happy to be here tonight to provide an update on the status of transit service and talk about the future of transit service. Tonight's agenda, just gonna give you a brief high-level 101 service summary. We're gonna talk a little bit about some of the operational challenges we've been experiencing. We're gonna talk, we're gonna rewind a little bit, talk about some of our recent transit surface improvements um, up to and including yesterday. We had some changes yesterday, so we'll have some very fresh changes to talk about. And then we'll talk a little bit about transit service enhancements. And those are those vision items that we have been sort of evaluating since the transit study came out. We originally evaluated 10 different ones in the council, kind of narrowed that focus down to three. So we'll talk about zero fare, um, we'll which will be the headliner tonight. We'll talk about Sunday service and we'll talk about late night on demand service. And of course, no transit service enhancement discussion is complete without talking about transit funding. So that's gonna be a very important piece of our discussion this evening. And then we're gonna follow up with um, some discussion about staff recommendation and what those next steps might be. All right, first and foremost, our mission. So Iowa City Transit's mission is to make transit more dependable for those that rely on it every day and make it really an easier choice for others. Welcome more people to transit, make it work for a better um, and greater number of our community members. We are always on a mission to improve our reliability, affordability, um, accessibility, safety, of course, um, sustainability, and we wanna make it um, as equitable of access for everyone in the community as we can. All right, high-level service summary. So how do we provide that service to the community? So we have 13 routes, um, six days a week. The routes are the same no matter the time of day or day of week. That's a, that's a recent enhancement. We provide service from about 6 a.m. to around 10.45, 11 p.m. at night. So that's about 17 hours on the weekdays, 12 hours on Saturdays. Our fare is $1 currently. We do have reduced fare options, including a reduced fare 31-day pass. Um, we, our service is free for those that are 65 and up, which is great. Those that have qualified disabilities also ride transit for free. Um, it's half price for youth. Uh, free for Medicare or seats card holders. And then the downtown shuttle for as long as I can remember is, is a free service. So that has always been free. 
We also offer paratransit operations along with our fixed route service. Um, that is that service is contracted through Johnson County Seats. Those rides are two dollars um, for qualified riders. All right, so how do we provide the service? So the fixed routes, of course, the, the paratransit is door-to-door is -door service depending on location, but the fixed routes are on, as they say, a fixed route. And this is a map of our current routes um, across, the, across the community, including some of the changes that we made to the North Dodge route and the no northernmost route in the bright green. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. Um, but these are all a result of the Iowa City Area Transit Study, um, and these are all part of the major overhaul that we did in um, 2020 and 2020. 21. All right, let's talk about staffing. So it takes 63 employees to operate our transit system on a daily basis, and that includes two transit administrators, that's myself and Mark Rummel. We have 3.5 supervisors. We also have two parking supervisors that are under the transportation services umbrella, and we do rely on them heavily, and especially during these major transit system changes, they've been instrumental in helping as well. So I don't want to leave their, their names out. Um, we have 47 mass transit operators. That's our, our budgeted number. That's 22 full-time and 25 three-quarter time. That three-quarter time, those three-quarter time positions are necessary because we have such an odd um, number of service hours and it helps us provide that coverage through the heavier peak hours. We have four mechanics on staff to help keep the buses rolling every day. We have four maintenance workers that help us turn the buses over at night um, to help make sure they're clean and presentable for the morning and all fueled up, ready to go, first thing. We also have a new management analyst position who um, just, I think, five months now um, on staff, very talented and has been extraordinarily um, helpful both on the transit side and the parking side of the house. And we have a program assistant position that we'll be filling um, in the near future to help with all of, all of the things um, that we have going on at transit, which is, is quite a bit. All right, this is this slide I'm very excited about. So this is um, Iowa City Transit ridership, um, and I'm gonna just kind of walk you through really briefly where things are at, but this is really a high-level overview since 2000. So you can see from 2000 to about 2008, which was sort of at our peak during the Great Recession, if you remember, um, transit ridership across the country really spiked then. Um, and we, uh, I would say we've remained fairly steady for the next few years after that till about 2015. Um, then we started to see a little bit of a dip. Um, I attribute that to um, the, the rise of ride hailing services that became so easy to, to call up with a smartphone. Gas prices also really started to decline about that point. So I don't think we can point to any one factor, but I think those two were definitely um, parts of that, that decline between 2015 and then 2019. And of course, as you see highlighted on here, you know, the pandemic. And that really um, did a number on our ridership and uh, here in Iowa City, across the metro area and really across the country. So we went from 1.4 million riders per year right before the pandemic to a low of about half a million riders during 2021. We rebounded a bit in, um, in FY22 to 850,000, and we're really excited to say that the forecast for this year looks like we're going to clear 1.1 million, um, which um, is more of a mental thing for, for any of us in transit. We're really excited to clear that mark again because it's been a bit of an unknown. We're not sure how new commuting patterns are going to, to shake out and if you know what percentage of people are gonna come back to transit, but we're really excited to keep moving um, the ridership needle up, and some of the enhancements we'll talk about later I think could really, really boost that. 
So how do those how do those numbers translate to the rest of the country? I love to include this, especially in all of our grant applications. It's in every one of them as many times as I can mention it. But Iowa City area ranks 21st in the nation in per capita ridership. So we have been on this list for some time. This is actually probably the lowest that we've been on this list. I think we've been as high as 11th in the nation. And that just shows the strength of our transit systems, the long, proud history we have um, with transit use in the community. And um, so I really like to highlight that as, um, as, a, as a success, always. Even when this was an FY21, um, that was our lowest transit ridership we've had um, in a very long time. So, um, so it's something we're always looking to see how we can and move up on this list, get more people on board. But we are, we're coming from a great place, and we're coming from a community that's really supportive of transit. So. It's a, it's a great news story. All right, ridership by month. So I just want to just give you a real quick glance as to how our ridership moves um, with the seasons. You probably could have expected this graph to look this way. So because we're so uh, into the flow with the university traffic um, and how people ebb and flow with the university calendar, you can see the spring, you can definitely see a pronounced spring semester and a pronounced fall semester. Um, in FY22, our highest ridership was about 91,000. Um, in July, it was 44,000. So it varies between those amounts, um, generally speaking. And again, this was FY22. The next slide here, this is just a glimpse as to what our ridership looks like by day of the week. I just compared um, FY19, because that was our last pre-pandemic year we had, with FY22, which is our last full year's worth of data we have. But I think this, well, A, it shows, you know, ridership was definitely down. So before this year, we're, we're coming out of that, um, we're coming out of that pandemic dip. It was hovering about 43% below our pre-pandemic levels. Um, we're actually now, I think we're gonna finish the year in the high 20s, maybe 26, 27% um, below pre-pandemic levels. So we're definitely crawling out of that. But one good news um, story here, one story this slide tells me is that no matter what our um, our overall ridership levels are doing, things are pretty consistent on a daily basis, as you can see. So it's pretty consistent Monday through Thursday, Friday, slight dip, Saturday goes very far down. Um, that's pr If you looked across all of our years, it's going to look very similar to that. Saturday ridership is only 6% of our total weekly ridership. Um, Sunday ridership, if we had a Sunday ridership on here, I would expect to see that it would be half of the Saturday ridership. That's usually what you can expect on Sundays. Um, that's a pretty kind of standard industry. Um, it varies a little bit between communities, but I, I would say it would probably be about half of that amount if we had, if we had uh, Sunday service ridership here to report. All right, ridership by route. So we've ranked these of each one of our 13 routes by ridership. And you can see at the very top end, the South Iowa City, the Lower Muscatine, the West Iowa City, and the Oak Crest are by far the top performers. Um, South Gilbert, Eastside Loop, Peninsula, and North Dodge, those are our lowest performers in terms of ridership. Um, we do have a few in the middle that we're watching very, very cautiously and carefully now. We're very excited to see what happens. The two Court Street and the nine Town Crest, um, beginning yesterday, we just began 20-minute service on these two routes. The, they had 30-minute service before, so we're really interested in seeing what these changes do to ridership. Of course, all of the changes to the system that we did as part of the big transit study, we weren't able to evaluate really how any of those individually worked definitively because of the pandemic. So this will be the first changes that we're making where we can measure 
the impact that we're going to see to ridership. So we're really carefully watching the Court Street and Towncrest and see how they might move in this list. All right, operational challenges, and I, and I think I highlighted some of these um, at the budget work session in January, but you know, staffing in general has been um, a challenge in having adequate staff, being able to hire adequate staff to cover unplanned absences, um, to plan and execute service improvements like what we did yesterday. Um, you know, having, we're having hiring pools that are greatly diminished. Um, we are leaving postings open and, you know, we'll, we'll go a long time before we even get an application. And this is an unusual state for us to be in. We've had a pretty consistent um, supply of interested parties um, over the years. So it's definitely been a challenge. Um, that coupled with we've got an aging workforce and the need for time off has been increasing. So we kind of have these two things happening at the same time um, that's been that's been a real challenge for us. I have a question. Mm -hmm. So uh, you have 47 mass transit operators. Mm -hmm. Do you know what your staffing ratios would be? How, how many staff do you need to make it all work? So ideally, the so the council gratefully um, uh, approved four additional um, four three-quarter time staff, so part-time staff for us last August. Um, and we used that number to help design the transit system that we, the tweaks that we rolled yesterday. So in theory, our budgeted number, we provide the service to the budgeted number that we have, if that makes sense. The, un, the what is an unknown variable for us is when people get sick and or there's long-term unexpected absences. Um, it becomes a real challenge for us. And the big problem is, is that if we, um, we're not like other, um, we don't have other jobs that we can, if we're overstaffed, I guess, but what I'm trying to say is if we have too much staff and then we don't have enough hours for those, for that staff to drive, then that becomes a problem too. So it is a, we have to ride a really razor thin, um, edge in transit. Um, we don't have other projects we can assign people to, you know, if, um, if, um, if you know we just happen to have no sick calls for a week, which would be amazing, but you know, um, so we, the number that we proposed last August was the number that we thought we would need in order to put together the um, to compensate for unplanned absences to the best that we could, and also plan for those service enhancements that we rolled out yesterday. Yeah. If we have more staff we could improve services. Um, so say for example, increasing the frequency of service on some of the buses, but at some point we're gonna need more buses too. So that is a very not clean answer for your oh, question. Under, um, it's, it it's a very, it's, it's kind of a it's, a, it's a, it's a moving target for us and we, we try to get as close to um, sure. having a number where we feel comfortable, but then um, it's just dependent on the status, the health well-being of, of, our, of our team. You know, who, uh, retirements, unexpected retirements, unexpected long absences. Yeah. Kind of on, on those lines, I've, I've known a few people who've been transit drivers and they would talk about the trippers. Now, are, do you still utilize those? Are those the three-quarter timers that'll go out uh, to meet the buses and uh, to let those transit drivers go on their meal breaks and those kinds? How do you deal with that with yes. your numbers? Yes, so we have what we call as extra board drivers and all of our new um, drivers, so uh, through the union agreement, we have a seniority-based system. So all of our new drivers are begin as, I think it's like a tripper, but we call them extra board drivers. And they have a semi, um, they have a very flexible schedule. So their schedules are, 
very dependent on that week's needs, um, and they do go relieve drivers if, if necessary. They um, do bus switches if necessary. So it's very, um, you know, we try to target a certain number of hours, but the, the schedule isn't necessarily set. Um, so yeah, we have, that's all of our newest drivers start in those positions, and then they work their way um, seniority-wise into selecting runs, if you will, which is more of a set schedule and certain routes. If that, if that describes that a little better for you. Yeah. So safety is another challenge um, that we've been talking about, um, increasingly talking about in recent years. And um, I think I've mentioned managing passenger conflicts at the fare box is, is always a challenge. Um, you know, the mask mandate, being responsible for ensuring everybody was wearing a mask was a real challenge. Um, and that was, I mean, we were happy to do it and we wanted everybody to ride safely. Our drivers wanted everybody to be on board safely, but that was a real challenge. So, so we have had some of those conflicts decrease but we have just generally seen an increase in disruptive and aggressive behavior from the public, and it's a minority of the public, I will say. It is not, it is not you know, everybody on the bus. There's certainly, it's just a small number of people. Um, but verbal assaults um, are becoming increasingly common. In fact, it's, and that's not just here, it's everywhere. Um, federally, we've just recently been required, and I'm talking within the last month, because of this uptick, to report all verbal assaults um, on the bus, and whether that's directed at, at, I think it's only if they're directed at the driver. Sometimes there's passenger-to-passenger -passenger conflicts, too. Um, but that is not an uncommon thing for our drivers to have to deal with, um, is to just deal with um, some back and forth with, with not happy customers, especially when, when there's either conflict at the fare box or they have to enforce some of our rules so that everybody can ride um, peacefully. Physical assaults um, are thankfully much less common, but they have occurred, um, and that is something that's just a concern for staff um, always. Um, you know, it's, 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 we have some staff that I think is more comfortable in addressing some of the rules of being on board um, than others because there's just, I think, that fear of a potential, you know, conflict or um, just a fear of retribution or um, just a ge generally, I would say, an increase in, in fearfulness. Is there, is there any pattern uh, like to that in terms of the time of day or day of the week? I'm trying to think if I can discern a pattern off the top of my head based on the incidents um, as I become aware of them, and I feel like it's really, they're all all times of day. Um, we could do some deeper analysis, and actually part of our, our new federal reporting kind of requires that we do that, so that's something we could certainly get back to you on and something that we should be evaluate. We do have calls that happen later at night, um, you know, maybe that could be alcohol-fueled. We do have some that happen in the middle of the day or in the morning, too. Um, so it's just... I think it's off the top, off the cuff, I would say it's, it happens, except for in the early morning hours. I don't know if we get a lot of incidents in the early morning hours. I think it's all other times of day seem to be fair game for, for these incidents. Yeah, my experience when riding the bus, not here, but elsewhere, was evenings seem to be more problematic, but. Yeah, it might, it might, that might, um, that might fare itself out. We'll, we'll take a look at that. On-time performance issues is another operational challenge, and I am very happy to say that a lot of the changes we made yesterday were to address this specifically. So um, I was very short with this one. Um, we'll report back, but we're so far things have looked um, really good in just the two days that we've been running um, some of those changes which were designed to fix this issue. 
Um, I've been talking with you all about the condition of our buses and facilities um, for, for several years. Um, you're all fairly aware of the aging condition of the transit facility, for example. Um, but we do have older buses. Um, the downtown interchange itself is not really, um, a, it's not really hospitable to, to passengers. There's not good cover. There's not good seating. Um, the annex that's down there, which is a small break room that's attached to the mall, um, it was built into the public right-of-way, is um, in poor condition, and it, um, it was a real challenge during the pandemic. It is very small, um, and there's two restrooms and a very small room with a refrigerator and a couple places to sit. And it's, um, even though we have rotating uh, meal breaks and schedules, um, it was impossible to keep any sort of reasonable distance <laughs> in there. I mean, it's, it's, maybe our standards have changed a little bit, um, but um, it's definitely on our agenda to, to take a look at that facility and how else we might be able to provide better break facilities for our staff downtown. And then last but not least, in terms of condition, the, our bus stops. Um, just generally speaking, um, as part of the transit study, um, we hear it from the community, we can see it ourselves. As part of the transit study, it identified as an area of opportunity as our bus stops. Um, we need to take a look at our bus stops. Um, there's, there's a lot of facilities that we could be adding to our bus stops to make it more safe and comfortable for our passengers. And, um, and they also need, we have nearly 500 stops. So as we add these facilities, that's gonna take a lot of maintenance um, to make sure that they are maintained in a way that is safe and comfortable for the public too. So two things that are on our mind in terms of bus stops. And we'll be, that's something that we're going to be, begin addressing in the next year by bringing a consultant in to help us make recommendations for each bus stop across the community, develop a plan, and then go and start making those improvements, including the downtown interchange. Quick question for you before we get too far into this, and it's possible that I may have missed um, you addressing this, but early in your presentation you had, uh, it was one of the first slides, you had a graphic that showed a downward trend for, for ridership starting, or at least maybe peaking uh, in 2015. Um, and, I, and I'm wondering if you guys have any uh, broader understanding as to why ridership has been a, a downward trend since then. Um, and again, apologies if I, I just missed that comment. No, thank you. Uh, that's a that's an excellent question. Um, I think that it's multifaceted the the reasons, but two things stand out to me: um, the, the gas prices. If you look at the gas prices um, after um, the Great Recession in two thousand eight, they they were there was a precipitous drop. Um, so I think that's one factor, but then also we had the rise of ride hailing services, um, app-based, really easy to use ride hailing services. Um, so I think those two things are, I would say, account for a good proportion of it. Um, maybe the general economy also afforded more people the ability to buy cars and pay for parking too. Um, that's definitely a possibility, but the, de the economy definitely approved. So those three factors are, are at the top of my list. All right, and the last operational challenge is electric buses. Um, we're still learning. Um, they are. They have many positive benefits, and we'll talk a, a little bit more about those. Um, but um, they 
it is like learning a whole new language. <laughs> so we've been, yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, it's learning to drive a spaceship. It's, it's essentially it, and they it's just everything from a troubleshooting perspective. I think the drivers have picked on, up on them pretty easily, but they do drive d different. So it's it's definitely a different from a driving perspective. If you've ever driven an electric vehicle, you know what the pedal. It feels very different to drive. They're the same size. Um, they maybe flow a little different down the road because they're very much heavier. Um, and then all of the equipment on board is, is different for the drivers. Um, but from a troubleshooting and maintenance perspective, when something, when we get signals from the bus and we, we have to figure out what that means, um, they're all under warranty. We do work with Proterra um, very closely. In fact, we, we're, we're still learning. We need them to help us work through uh, most of the issues. Um, uh, but it's 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 a learning experience. So so we're 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 taking it day by day. <laughs> All right. So transit service improvement timeline. So I just want to take you on a real quick um, journey back in time and just bring you back up to today, just to to touch on the points that we the things that we've done in the last few years to improve the transit system. In August of 2019, we kicked off the Iowa City Area Transit Study. Um, in June 2021, the council approved the plan. We had a little pandemic break in there. I think we were all very busy with other things for a bit. Uh, the first two pieces of the plan that we implemented was a fair policy alignment with Coralville. Um, in July of 2021, in August, we launched the new bus routes um, and staff schedules. In January of 2022, we commenced electric bus operations. So we've been in um, been in play with electric transportation for a little over a year now, which has been very exciting. Um, and then yesterday, <laughs> we had our first round of service level adjustments since the big changes to the transit system. So we'll talk a little bit more about each one of these in the upcoming slides. But the next phases, of course, are to consider zero fare or other enhancements. Um, and to work on the bus stops. Um, that's, that's kind of our two hot items that are really kind of at the top of our list right now. All right, so back into that rewind mode. So those first, that first group of transit system changes um, for those that weren't here or just a refresher for those of you that were, um, we redesigned the routes, we renamed them, we, re we numbered them, which has been really helpful. Um, I'm starting to refer to them solely by the numbers and I'm hearing people in the community do that too. So um, there's a color assigned to it and a number, which I think helps with legibility. All of our buses now run every 30 minutes or better during peak times, um, and that's a major improvement over our, our former system. Half of our routes now have 30-minute service midday, um, which it was only a few, I mean, only a handful of routes had 30-minute service, I think maybe three or four um, before. So that was one thing we heard from the community, let's make service frequency in the middle of the day better so we can use it for these other non-work-related or off-schedule, off-eight-to-five schedule work trips. <coughs> Um, we improved our evening and weekend service, and we made them the same routes as the weekday. So we no longer had a separate evening and weekend route, um, so you didn't have to think about what time it was. Um, it was ju it's just much cleaner and simpler for the public to understand. Of course, we, locked, uh, we launched the battery electric buses last year. Uh, we allowed transfers at any stop. That was something that wasn't um, system-wide before, so that's been really helpful. For the community, again, we aligned our fare policies with Corville to make it so much easier for people to make cross metro area commutes. You could use all the passes bought in either community on either system um, interchangeably. 
Um, we introduced zero fare for those 65 plus um, and those with disabilities. And I can't tell you the number of emails of cheers that I got from people who qualified um, for those free senior, they called them the senior cards. Um, they were very excited about that. Um, it was really nice to be able to, to offer that service and give another reason um, to stay in Iowa City um, for, for those in their golden years. Um, those with disabilities also, qualifying disabilities also received free, are able to qualify for free transit. And then of course we had that youth 50% discount. So those were the big changes that we did to the transit system in 2021 and 2022. And what we did yesterday, I'm just gonna highlight these really quickly, is we um, made some changes, physical changes to the North Dodge route. So we no longer directly serve Pearson or ACT. We would drive onto both of those campuses um, and they no longer need our service, but um, thankfully um, there's other people in the areas that were really excited to have our service, so we changed the route up a bit. Um, we now, so where the ACT campus, we used to pull into the ACT campus off of Scott Boulevard, now we just go down Scott Boulevard and use that fantastic roundabout, new roundabout at First Ave and Scott, which is a dream to turn around in, in a bus. It's much easier than pulling in and backing out, I will tell you that. Um, the drivers have been really happy about that. But now we're providing service to First Avenue roundabout, turning around and coming back before we head north. So we're able to provide direct service to Oak Knoll East, um, which they were thrilled about, and we're thrilled to be able to provide that service. Further north on the route, when you get over the interstate, we used to serve Pearson, which is on the east, uh, no, on the west side, excuse me, of Dodge Street. Um, they have since ceased their operations or the bulk of their operations there. So we are now serving the opposite side of the Northgate Corporate Park, where there's more employees, there's more um, potential for ridership. Um, we're very excited and we've been working with the Highlander. We have a stop at the Highlander and they've been very accommodating and very excited to have us there. And we also put two stops on Highlander Place, which is that little road that gets you to the Highlander. Um, and so we're excited to start to market that new the new transportation service that we have available for that side of Northgate um, very soon to, let, to get the word out and let everybody know. I mentioned that we have 20-minute service now on the Court Street and Towncrest routes. Um, so this is an approved frequency improvement, so we go from 30 minutes to 20 minutes. Um, this is going to resolve some of these persistent on-time performance issues we had on these routes. We just didn't get these routes right. Um, it was just too tight of a 30 minutes was just not enough in terms of the full total schedule. It's a 30-minute 30 minute route, it wasn't enough time. So we changed the route into a 40 minute route and then we have higher frequency service. So we put more buses out there and that is solving the problem um, and providing better service. So it is, it's an absolute win. Um, 40 minute service on these two routes in the evening and Saturdays too, which is an improvement from, from hourly service. So we're really excited, like I said, to, to watch how these routes um, perform in terms of ridership. We've started transit earlier on eight routes. So after we launched the transit system changes, we heard from a lot of people on the east side that just a trip or two would make a big difference. So we are adding one to two trips on each one of these routes in the early morning hours just to help um, those early birds get where they need to go or help them make those connections. So, um, so we're excited to have gotten that off of the ground yesterday. 
and while we're making any, when we open the schedule or when we open the crack open the schedule or um, make changes to the system in general, we are always looking for ways that we can improve the schedules for our drivers because it is, there's some tough schedules um, that are out there. So we increased, um, while we had the schedule open, we increased the number of shifts with two consecutive days off. Um, that's something that maybe not everybody thinks about, but it was, it's just not a possibility for us based on the 17 hours a day we need coverage and the, and the six days a week. Um, so we've been really excited about that. Our part-time drivers have more schedule predictability. So to your question, um, Councilor Taylor, we um, have, they're the ones that have the, the most haphazard schedules, I would say, or unpredictable schedules. But we found ways to build some more predictability into each one of that um, to help, um, just to help encourage, <laughs> to encourage those folks, A, to stick around, but to make their schedules more livable, really, for them. Um, we reduced our split shifts to only two. I think before we made all these transit system changes, we were at seven or eight, somewhere in the high, um, not quite 10, but somewhere up there. Um, so we had, we have, um, we have employees that have work four hours in the morning and then they go home and then they come back and work four hours in the evening, which as you imagine is, it can be a, a really difficult schedule. Um, but we've found a way, we keep reducing the numbers, we found ways to make it work and now we're down to only two of those schedules and I think those are people that actually like them. So, so that's, that's kind of a win for us too. But we're always looking for ways to, to reduce those split shifts. And then, as I mentioned, we increased the trip length on the Court Street and the Town Crest. Those are great benefits for our customers, to be sure. 20-minute um, buses come by every 20 minutes. But the delight from our staff has been overwhelming. They have been so happy yesterday and today because those buses, the schedules are so tight, it was almost impossible to get off the bus and run to the bathroom um, and get back in time or grab something or you know, take a break in between those. It was a really tough route for, for, um, for, our, um, for our drivers to drive. So it's become, I think, our least favorite route to our most favorite route in, <laughs> in the course of 24 hours. So, um, so we've been really excited that that's been, um, that's been kind of a, a thorn in, in, in our side for, for some time. So we're really excited to make those changes. All right, electric buses. Um, so just a really high level, we just put together, we're just getting all the data together um, to start understanding um, the benefits um, and the drawbacks of electric buses, but um, really excited to announce we put 60,000 miles on e-buses, on our electric buses last year, in the first year. Um, that's an 88% carbon emission savings per bus. So we saved 32 metric tons of CO2 just from that transition of four buses from electric to diesel, um, both from having the Electric is just generally speaking uh, less carbon intensive, but because we have mid-American energy electric, which is 88% um, renewable, that really increases the amount of carbon savings that we can see. So that was really exciting number to see. We also ran the calculations to see how much the fueling costs for an average diesel bus last year versus um, the average electric bus. And uh, we calculated out that the diesel buses are 98 cents per mile to fuel and the electric bus only cost 23 cents per mile at our um, electric rates last year. So it's really exciting news and that is a considerable real savings. Um, 82,000 total is what we calculated in savings from those four electric buses um, in FY22. 
As I mentioned before, we're still getting to know the buses. We're still learning their language. Um, we're learning how to troubleshoot. Again, we're very reliant on the manufacturer. Um, and we're still awaiting our final charger installation. The, that project has been, we've been on temporary equipment, which has, has kept us moving. Um, but we are really excited to get the final chargers installed. We've had been hampered with um, supply chain issues for a very long time, um, installation issues. There's not a lot of, it's a global experience, at least in this area, in the installation of this equipment. So there's been a lot of back and forth between Proterra, Power Electronics, who is the manufacturer for the chargers, and then our local um, contractors. So it's been, it is a project. Um, we'll be happy once we get this, this piece done because we'll have that knowledge and we'll have some more experience um, going into our next, um, our next expansion. Um, but it's, we're, still, we're still waiting on that. And then the bus downtime, the last thing I want to mention again, is for the warranty repairs, like I said. So I would say the, our repairs for the electric buses are taking twice as long. So that is really the downside right now. Part of that is us. We have to figure out um, the problem. We have to troubleshoot it. We usually have to bring, if it's a warranty repair, we have to bring Proterra in to help us fix the The buses are still under warranty. So things are taking longer, um, I'd say, in general. Um, there hasn't been a repair that we haven't overcome yet. We figured out how to work through um, all the challenges. The doors are a bit finicky and we're still working with <laughs> Proterra on, on those pieces. But outside of that, we've been able to come to a, um, a resolution with, with every repair that's that's been needed. It's just they're taking longer. So when they're down, they're down for longer. Um, and we're hoping to see that to become more um, commensurate with our diesel buses as we gain that knowledge and experience um, going forward. All right, so we've arrived at our next step. So um, really, we're at the point to just talk about what are some of the next options for our, our transit service. That was, we were in a very unique position with the Iowa City Area Transit Study. Um, I remember our consultants mentioning how exciting it was to not only be working on a study where we're trying to figure out how to optimize everything, but you're looking, you know, for if based on what you, we hear from the community, how do we how do we enhance the system? Um, and it's still exciting for me to think about. And and the council had given us some direction a few years back about the transit service enhancements that that you thought um, might be the most beneficial, based on what we're hearing from the community. And those were zero fare transit. Uh, Sunday service, and then late night, overnight on-demand service. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about each one of those, just highlight some of the benefits and some of the challenges um, with those at, based on um, our research um, that we've been doing into those particular enhancements. So first off, zero fare. So what is zero fare? You just hop aboard. Um, there's no fee, there's no pass required. Um, the fare is essentially prepaid. Um, in FY22, just as an FYI, the fare only covered 13% of the cost of each ride. So for those that imagine taking the way that fare, you know, you need that fare, and, we, and it is a considerable part of our revenue. Uh, we'll talk about exactly how much in a few slides, but really that fare only covers 13% of our total um, the cost of each ride, and that is across the United States. There, I can't think of a transit system that is not supported with other, and needs to be supported with other funds um, and other um, funding methods. So ours is, uh, again, 13% of, of the expenses um, for each ride. And of course, zero fare was, uh, is indicated as a strategic plan item in the, the city's strategic plan for FY23 and 24. All right, 
zero fare benefits. Um, lots of benefits here. I probably could have put more on the slide, but there's there's plenty of words here. Um, really, it's zero fare first and foremost will remove a significant barrier for transit use. And whether that barrier is the cost or the fact that you have to um, get a pass, go somewhere, get a pass, figure out how to work the, the fare box. Um, just it's something you have to do to get to get onto onto the bus. So um, in you know in building a transit system that will accommodate more riders, what you're looking for is ways to remove barriers, and this this could be a very big one. Um, it will increase ridership. Um, we'll talk a little bit more later about what we think that might look like, but it will increase ridership. Um, it will improve our on-time performance um, because it, for every, if you imagine the stack of um, customers waiting to, to get on board to use their pass, they kind of go one at a time. Someone might have questions. Someone might be looking and digging for change, um, you know, in their pocket. It takes time. So in those little, those little moments really add up over the course of a whole route. So it will improve our on-time performance. It will clearly reduce our fare collection expenses because we will not have um, staff time devoted to, to managing the fare collection system. Um, it will address um, equity goals for the community, um, making uh, transportation available to anybody no matter what income level you're at, easily available to anybody no matter what income level you're at. It will reduce, help to reduce some of those conflicts at the fare box um, that occur when people don't have fare, don't have enough fare, they want to use a transfer, they can't use a transfer. Um, th those things that just happen um, at the fare box, it will just be a hello, a friendly wave, uh, you know, welcome aboard. It will be, um, it will be a different um, environment at the fare box, really. Um, one of the most important benefits um, to me is that no additional staff or buses are required. Um, I couldn't say this years ago when we first looked at this. That was not the case. That is the case now. So if there's an upside to the pandemic, maybe that is it. Because our ridership is down, we do not need to add staff and we do not need to add buses at this time. So um, just, wanted to, just wanted to point that out. It, this would be easy um, and a relatively quick implementation from, from our perspective. We could also potentially forego 900,000 in fare box expenses. So our fare boxes are unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on um, how you view the timing, at the end of their useful life. They will stop being supported um, by, uh, uh, by our, our fare box manufacturer. And so either, either way, we can, you know, we can talk about retiring them, we can talk about um, you know, getting a new set, but it will be upwards of a million dollars to replace all of our fare boxes. Um, going forward. This is a potential way to forego those expenses. Clearly zero fare would address our climate action goals and our livability goals for the community. So that's the more, if we really want to shift 55% of trips from um, single occupant vehicles to biking, walking, and riding transit, um, I can't think of a better way to, to and a faster way to, to achieve those goals than to provide a, a an, you know, biking and walking doesn't work for everybody, and if a car or a vehicle is, is, the, is the right tool for the job, I can't think of a better way than to make a, a, a transit system zero fare so people can just hop on board um, and replace that single, single occupant trip um, that they might have otherwise made. And last but not least, this would benefit every single person on every single ride. It's one of the very few things that we could do that will truly, no matter what time of day, no matter what income level, um, no matter what your, um, your ability, um, whether you have a disability, whether you don't have a disability, 
it would benefit every single person um, who hops on board in this community. So challenges with zero fare. So of course this would come with challenges and the first and foremost, I'm sure that's on everyone's mind, is that loss of fare revenue. So in FY22, that would have um, looked like a loss of about $871,000. This year, this fiscal year that we're wrapping up, it's closer to a million um, to give you kind of a sense for what that would look like, what gap would need to be made up. There will be federal funding impacts. Um, locally, we'll talk about this in a few slides, but locally our funding, um, one of our factors that our funding is dependent on is fair revenue. So that'll be something that we need to consider. And again, we'll talk about that. Increased demand could require more service, staff, and or capital needs. So again, if, we, if, if zero fare does take off um, and um, you know ridership continues to grow and build, there is, a likelihood at some point we would need additional staff, we would need additional buses, we would need additional service to help handle um, the demand, which would be a great position to be in, but it does not come without um, you know financial challenges that would need to be overcome. Increased paratransit demand, that's another factor to consider. So um, when you take away that fare from paratransit as well, we will likely see an increase in, in demand. So that's something that we have to be considerate of and in, in, in think about in addition to, to the fixed route uh, system. Uh, will um, you just make it a little, um, speak to that a little more? Sure. Because paratransit, whatever we do within the city, um, as far as fare, if it's free fare, it's required that paratransit has to also be uh, free. And then also speak to Corville, um, who also has a busing system. What would that look like? That's great questions. So first and foremost, yes. So because our um, we can federally we can charge no more than double fixed route fare for paratransit. So you'll see a dollar fare for um, our fixed route system, and then a two dollar fare for paratransit. However, if you're making the service free um, for fixed route, then then you need to follow suit with your paratransit services. So that would that would need to be free as well. And um, if Iowa City decided to pursue zero fare, that would mean um, Corville, um, I don't believe that they've had these discussions um, in that community. Um, but if, if Iowa City was fair, Cor there's a chance that Corville could still require a fare. So there could still be a bus pass that you would need to purchase, or you would need, to, if you transferred to Corville or used the Corville service, you would still need to um, bring your dollar or bring your bus pass. Um, so there is a chance that if Iowa City considered that this path forward, that, that Corville, there's a good chance that Corville will still be charging a fare. And Corville is clearly aware we're having this conversation. Yes, yes, yes. Corville is aware, yes. Yeah. Corville was part of the transit study as well, um, and the, the vision item for a zero fare um, system focused only on Corville, excuse me, only on Iowa City. Um, at that point, we were the only community that was really, I mean, Canbus was also on board with the study clearly already have a zero fare system, um, but it was really only from Iowa City's perspective at that point, and I th as far as I understand, I don't believe that they've had um, conversations um, past that point that I'm aware of. Thank you. Yes. And then the last but not least, a challenge um, that we expect will happen with zero fare is we'll um, increase in free riding um, or people riding just to ride. So, and we did see an uptick in this during the small period during the pandemic when we, um, we were zero fare and we were backboarding at that time for social distancing. Um, and that can become problematic 
because you know people can be taking up space for other passengers who are trying to get to locations, and sometimes there could be uh, concerning behavior. Um, we do have rules in place to prevent people from you know doing that now. Um, so you can only ride one route. Um, you can ride the route, and then you can ride back, um, but then you have to. You know, you have to exit the bus. Um, so, and just like if there is, you know, if there's any concerning behavior, we would handle it just like we handle concerning behavior today. Um, it's it would it would not be any different. But this is something to be aware of that will likely be um, an outcome on some level. <coughs> All right, transitioning from zero fare to Sunday service. So, what is Sunday service? Um, basically, mirroring the Saturday schedule on Sunday. Um, it would be fixed route, and it would also be paratransit service. So that would be um, both of those would be offered on a Sunday if um, if that service were considered. Um, hourly service. So most of our routes run hourly on Saturday now with 40-minute service on the Lower Muscatine, and as of yesterday on Court Street and the Town Crest. Benefits to Sunday service. Well, it would be a predictable seven-day-a-week service, so there would be no question of whether there was service offered on any particular day. It would improve access to weekend employment opportunities, um, weekend access to shopping, festivals, church, um, recreation, um, that sort of thing um, across the weekend. It was highly requested in the transit study. And it would, um, as I mentioned before, it would apply to fixed route and paratransit. So both of those services would be available. All right, challenges with, with Sunday service. I think the first uh, and foremost challenge um, is that we are going to need additional staff in order to provide seven-day-a-week service. It becomes um, a considerable challenge to add that extra day on Sunday. Um, we, especially from, uh, we would need more drivers to be sure, 10 additional drivers, but we would need additional administrative staff. We would need a supervisor, a weekend operations supervisor to manage it. We have an on-call situation that we kind of get by with right now. Um, and we don't have mechanics on staff over the weekend and we don't have maintenance staff um, on the weekend, but we would need that staff if we had service on both days to ensure that continuity of service throughout the week. Um, 10 three quarter time drivers right now, I honestly can't tell you how long that would literally take if we posted that right now um, to fill those positions. It would take some time. It took us the better part of between August and now, and we're still not fully staffed, um, to, to get to fully staffed um, from the four additional um, drivers that you approved last August. So. It, it would be a real challenge to, to get the number of drivers, and I, and I honestly wouldn't be able to peg a time to that very easily. And again, I mentioned these issues earlier, but the candidate pools have diminished. Um, we have less applicants with CDLs, and then new federal requirements, which are lengthening um, the process by which people, um, the, the training that people need before they can get their CDL. Because of the additional staffing increases necessary, the expenses um, were forecasted to increase by about 1.3 million annually. Um, paratransit demand would also increase, like I mentioned. So paratransit demand is about $68 a trip. Um, it, it, we had 25,000, a little over 20, almost 26,000 um, last year, last fiscal year in terms of trips to give you a sense for how many of those trips we offer throughout the community. And then the, the last challenge I want to mention is that we expect Sunday ridership not to exceed 2 to 4% of the weekly ridership. So again, if you visualize that, that day of the week chart, that Monday through Thursday was pretty consistent, Friday dropped down, and Saturday really dropped down. Sunday would be about half of what that Saturday service would be in terms of expected ridership. 
I know this is like an onion where you peel one thing back and there's more and more layers to this, but I was wonder I know at one point earlier on um, there was the idea of a pilot program, right? And I'm just wondering within scope of that, I guess, was there a study done on what routes would be most used by, you know, where would it be? I'm not coming out with a question, right? I think you're, you know where I'm going. I guess what I'm thinking is in terms of Sunday ridership and, and sort of the, the big lift that it would take in terms of capacity, of money, and whatnot, um, have you been able to consider maybe, well, it's the south route, it's court, it's, you know, whatever, 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 but it would be like we've got four routes that we're going to go with to begin with or, or to say that this is what we're going to offer and then others can chime in. Other users can say, hey, actually, we would want this. I don't know if... Like I said, I understand this is incredibly complex, but I'm thinking, I love that you gave the scope of like, here's what it would be for everything. Yeah. Have there been other considerations of scaling it downward a little bit? It's a really great, it's a really good question. And I, I don't think from a fixed route perspective, we considered anything besides an all or nothing. Um, not to say that it couldn't happen. I mean, theoretically, you know, we could, we could apply a service, but we, I think that the the benefits might diminish, though, because we would need still need all that staffing, that administrative overhead, um, to provide yeah. even service on Sunday at all. Um, so the cost benefit might not be there unless you can maximize your ridership, um, which would really take kind of a full expansion. Yeah. We did um, some other options. We did look at look at is doing an, an on-demand option um, on Sunday. One of the, um, I mean, and that's. That, that is, that's a different that's a different you know animal altogether. But the next option I'm going to talk about is a late night overnight on demand option. But really, that could be extended to any time transit is not in operation. So in theory, if that was um, that might be that might be an option for Sunday service as well. So that might we, there might be a way to to utilize that service to help provide on demand um, support um, on Sundays. But yeah, we did look at this holistically. Um, we didn't and we didn't. Um, we didn't get, you know, route by route ridership projections um, oh, but from it, the consultant team. Yeah. Your point, though, about the overhead, I mean, that's just not going to give you the return on investment if it's just to downsize the number of routes. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank you. All right, so segue right into late night on demand. And like I said, this could be also applied to. Um, Anytime transit is not in service. I think that's how some communities use this as well. So again, runs when transit is not in service. Um, this particular way we're envisioning this would be a shared vehicle or van pool. You'd schedule by phone or by app. And this is another strategic plan item that's in um, the plan for FY25 or FY28 to evaluate. So the benefits of an evening or late night on-demand service is that it provides a safe late night transportation option for employees. It provides uh, equitable access to opportunity. It's a reliable service. Um, there's you know some op other options out there where you don't really. You know, I say I'm thinking Uber or Lyft or some some sort of partnership in that respect. But you don't always know um, the supply of vehicles at any one hour. This is kind of more of a uh, reliable and a, and a guaranteed um, ride. And of course, it supports economic development and our equity objectives. Challenges um, cost significantly more per ride than transit. Um, there's a question, of course, of who would um, contract and operate the service. 
Um, a regional service would be best um, in this community, I, I suspect, uh, and serve those who work and live in different communities. Not all late night, overnight um, demand is just enclosed within Iowa City, so it could be a broader discussion than, than what we're having right here. That might require cost-sharing agreements with other communities. Um, and our preliminary estimate, um, and it's been a bit since we put this together, was about 650000 per year, and that was just really considering Iowa City-related trips, um, and that was about $35 per ride. I suspected if I ran these numbers right now, um, you'd see that $35 per ride go up maybe by $20, um, based on how we've seen, for example, seats uh, ridership per ride go up. So costs are escalating and increasing. Um, um, it seems like by the minute we're all hoping that things start <laughs> settling down, um, but I suspect that that number, when we revisit it, it's going to look it's going to look higher. I have it's probably a dumb question, but why not the city buy half a dozen vans and hire those six you know six positions and, and or whatever it would be that with all the added stuff? What would be the as opposed to contracting it out? I would say, uh, and we did look at that too, um, sure. and this was um, prior to your arrival on council, we did um, look at, at internally managing that. And between the, the software package that we would need to get the, the vehicles and the staffing, um, it, I don't think it rose to the top of the list in terms of the cost benefit. Okay. Um, it would be, and I would suspect anybody who's doing the service, whether it was in-house or any other um, service, it's going to be a challenge to staff it as well, especially this because it's late night and it's mm -hmm. overnight. Um, so, yeah, it was, it's, yeah, I think th those are some of the challenges that we would have in-house. I think it's just looking at who already has maybe invested in some of those fixed assets, whether it's an, an app if you're subsidizing an Uber or a Lyft uh, type of operation, or you have providers like Horizons that does this up in Lynn County, um, and being able to tap into not only their workforce that may be able to go between communities, but also their dispatch system, their their vehicle fleet. Um, you know, there's there's economies of, of scale to, to tap into. Even seats might be a you know an option to explore. Um, but for us to start on demand from scratch, we just have to expect it'd be a little bit more expensive uh, with that initial um, investment in the the back end of things. Would that hold true then for a Sunday service? Because that would be daytime. Would it be the same sort of thing, or would that change the change the dynamic a little? You, you mean in terms of whether this it would be um, it would be uh, harder to find staff because it no longer would be overnight, mm -hmm. you know that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think any anything that we would need to staff on a Sunday during the day would be easier for us to staff on a night. However, weekend staffing is a challenge um, sure. in general for us. But um, yeah, for for the reasons Jeff outlined, the economies of scale and the fact that especially um, horizons, I think of, but any we could you know anybody. With the Vanpool service could provide this. Um, it seems like it would be a quicker, um, more efficient process to rely on a reliable partner who's provided the okay. service with um, results. And, and honestly, Horizons comes to mind, and, and I've spoken with Cedar Rapids. Um, they've gotten very good feedback um, from Cedar Rapids because they provide off-transit service for Cedar Rapids. So they provide they're the, the contracted service for Cedar Rapids. So it's good to know there's a model in the area that works, um, mm -hmm. and they have expressed interest in um, potentially expanding if that's ever something that the council wants to pursue. 
I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole, so I'll ask one more. Um, the Horizons, do you know what do they charge? Do they charge the riders a certain set fare, or does it depend on distance? Or So when we last talked, um, and this might have changed, <laughs> because, again, that $35 um, per ride estimate was developed in part with conversations through Horizons. Um, they were charging, I believe it was $6 one way, um, and that, again, was a couple years ago, so I don't know if that's changed, um, which is not inexpensive, really. Um, it's not, but it's when the, when, for the passenger. Um, but when you're talking about you know, cost per ride of 35 or up, um, you know, it's a, it's a small portion of it. So uh, City of Cedar Rapids does subsidize the service. I think all the metro area um, entities, it's my understanding that they, um, they help to support that service. Thank you. Yep. I have one question, because um, sure. you just answered the one about what the cost for the passenger would be, mm -hmm. roughly, yeah. understanding it. it's so probably gone up since then. Um, but the other is whether there's you've had any conversations with the university about partnering since, and I recognize to your point that you know, this would probably be more regional than just Iowa City, but on the flip side, especially like weekend nights, um, I'm really struck by the the safety aspect of this and that I know that at one time there kind of were those like weird party bus get home options and so I was thinking that the university might I mean I realize times are tough all over but I just wondered if those conversations had possibly happened that there could be a partnership since I would think that students would be um, a significant portion of uh, potential riders. Yes, we haven't. Um, I wouldn't say we have had formal conversations, but that would, um, because this is on the strategy plan as an item for the future, where that will be part of our conversations. Gotcha. Absolutely. Okay. Um, and they are, I, it's been interesting to watch university because their services are evolving to evolving and changing as well. So um, we do keep in communication and, and talk about these different types of services that we have. And, um, and so it's something that I'm excited. I think they've just recently rolled out some changes to that end, to their late night overnight. And that's something I have on my list next time um, I have my regular quarterly meeting with the university to talk about just how those programs are going but that will definitely be part of that discussion at any time when, when the time is right for um, for us to move forward and bring you more information sure. um, we'll certainly be looking at um, what the university is doing and if there's any partnership opportunities there yep. All right, next slide, transit funding. So this is where the real exciting stuff happens. So um, in FY22, I'm just giving you a snapshot on this slide of what our transit funding, our revenue looks like. So um, you can see the largest um, portion is, uh, we use that for a local match, but that is, uh, that's our, that's really our um, uh, transit levy. So that's our um, property tax revenues. So that makes up the greatest portion. Um, our federal operating grant, which we're gonna talk about in a few slides, have a little bit of a discussion about that made up 16% of our total revenue. COVID relief funding, um, which all of this has an expiration date on it, made up about 23%. So nearly a quarter of our, our revenue last year was COVID funding relief. Then you get into a smaller slice. Um, so fair revenue made up 8% of our total revenues to give you kind of a sense for um, it's it's not an insignificant portion but compared to all of our other funding sources it is it is relatively small 
And then our other funding source is other revenue, and most of this is proceeds from the Court Street Transportation Center. And if you weren't aware, that was developed in 2006, I believe, as a partnership project between the Federal Transit Administration and the city, and all proceeds are to go to support the transit system. So we have parking proceeds, we have, um, there's, a, there's a restaurant, there's a daycare, there's the inner city bus, um, all of those rents, they go to the transit system. So that is what that, um, the bulk of that 7% in other revenue is. All right, a little bit more about fare revenue. Um, first, let's talk about um, transit trip costs. So if you look at the box on your right, in FY22, each transit trip cost $7.64. So that's how much it costs the city to provide that trip. Um, a $1 fare, of course, um, covers then 13% of those transit expenses. And I just wanted to show a, um, you know, that a fare is kind of a small portion of that, but also um, the transit trip, that $7.64 may or may not seem shocking, but just a few years ago it was $3 in some sense. So it's more than doubled very quickly. Um, so it's something that we're keeping, we're keeping an eye on. Each paratransit trip costs $68 per trip. And again, we recover $2 for the fare. So that's $66 that we need to uh, come up with from under other funding sources. And so that really, that fare only covers about 3% um, of, of the expenses for paratransit. So the fares make up, not they're not insignificant, but they do make up a small portion of um, the overall expenses. And as I mentioned before, um, you know, 871,000 was our fair revenue in FY22. We're forecasting about 985,000 for this fiscal year that's about to wrap up. So those would be the fares that are for, foregone if we, if we considered moving to zero fare. And that includes both fixed route and paratransit. Can you help me understand this uh, a little better? Sure. I think it used to be $80 per hour for a bus to run. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to <laughs> make the shift in my head to mm -hmm. the 764. So, and it's probably a hundred, is it? Yeah. hundred and what do you think it is now? 105. 105. So it's, probably, it's about 105 now per hour. So <coughs> that is the total cost of uh, operating that bus. So that is yeah. the driver, the fuel, the average, you know, the maintenance cost. For, to provide one hour of our service, it costs a little bit over $100 per hour. Yep. Thank you. Yep. All right, as I promised, we're gonna get into federal funding land and I will try to make it as exciting as I possibly can. Uh, <laughs> it's, very, it's difficult with this material, but um, 5307 is that operating funding that we get to keep our transit system afloat. It is very important. Um, it, is, it helps fund all transit systems across the United States. We're all very dependent on it. And the urbanized area, so the whole urbanized area through the MPO receives an allocation based on um, an annual allocation based on urbanized area population, population density, and then last but not least, small intensive communities. And this is bonus funding. And we are a small intensive community. They call it stick funding. Um, but there are six criteria for the small intensive um, community funding. And if in this criteria, we are outperforming larger metropolitan areas, we get 
our metro area gets around a half a million dollar bonus for each one of those criteria we are hitting. We hit four of the criteria on a regular basis. So we get over two million extra dollars per year because we are a high performing um, metro area, which is really great news. So we take all that funding, comes through the MPO. The MPO helps distribute those funds locally to Corville Transit, Canbus, and City of Iowa City using a formula that they've had in place for some time. This formula considers um, total operating costs for each entity, locally determined income, revenue miles, and then last but not least, fair revenue. So there, therein lies the, the impact, the potential impact to our federal funding um, by moving to a zero fare. So without any changes to this MPOJC formula, uh, <clears throat> if you looked at last year's um, distributions, for example, Iowa City would lose about $600,000 annually moving to a zero fare if no changes to the formula were done. That would be simply because we'd be reporting zero fare revenue into that formula that determines how, how, the, how the funding is, is distributed. Iowa City would, of course, propose a formula if zero fare, um, if we decided to move in the direction of zero fare, Iowa City would propose a formula update to keep funding allocations in the metro area stable. So what Iowa City would propose is that we keep our funding formulas stable for the next two years based on where they're at right now. So that chart on your right, um, as I mentioned, there's four formula, um, four criteria that we use. The chart on your right shows you basically how those criteria related to the proportion of funding that was um, delivered to Iowa City, Corville, or Canbus for the last 10 years. So you see in the last um, four or five years, um, Iowa City's proportion has been about 61, 61 and a third percent. Our proposal would be to carry that current funding level and the same level for Canbus and the same level for Corville Transit, carry it forward for two years um, if, we are, if we decide to move forward with the zero fare pilot so that we can ensure that our funding is stable and consistent and we're not penalized for bringing a zero fare service to the, to the community, really the metro area community, Iowa City specifically, but we do support um, transit service for the metro area also. All right, more about federal funding. So more than you probably ever wanted to know. So it, this chart shows our federal funding between um, FY13 and our forecast through FY29. And you can see in the light pink, um, the allocations when they were much lower in the first 10-ish um, years, 10 or so years, that was under funder former federal legislation. It was MAP21, if you follow that sort of thing. Um, but you could see our funding levels were um, relatively no, they never cleared $2 million. We received a historic increase in our federal funding for transit as part of the bipartisan infrastructure law that was signed into law last year. Um, Life-saving, life-giving, um, not just for us, but for transit agencies across the country. Um, it was nearly a 50% increase, which is, we've never seen anything like that. That's, of course, really great news, right? Especially if that federal funding um, continues. You can see there's a five-year time limit right now on the bi uh, bipartisan infrastructure law. We don't know what happens past those five years. Um, it is, if this graph shows you what would happen if federal funding continued to um, 
on the same trajectory. Um, but we also don't know if this scenario is um, going to happen, where it was a historic um, increase and then it's followed by a decrease back to our previous funding levels. We, there isn't a historic record of transit levels, uh, transit funding making such dramatic drops, but we need to be prepared, especially when we're considering these really, um, these kind of high ticket transit service enhancements, we need to be prepared and aware um, of all options. So there is a potential for drop off. And in the next couple slides, I'm going to show you some uh, some transit funding forecasts. We forecasted each one if transit um, the funding levels stay where we hope they will stay, or even increase. We would not be opposed to an increase. Um, we did not run a scenario about an increase. Um, but we also want to make sure we're presenting to you tonight to what it would look like if that funding level dropped back down again, because that's something we need to consider. All right, so first, first slide I want to show you is status quo operations. So this is if we did nothing, no enhancements to the transit system. We just, we just keep on running the transit system. Um, you can see in the top scenario here, this is where there's no drop off in federal funding. You can see even with no drop off in federal funding, even if we don't enhance the transit system in any major way, we're going to start seeing budget shortfalls in the out year in FY29. If there is a drop in federal funding, we're going to start seeing those shortfalls a little bit earlier. We're going to start seeing them in FY28. Um, at $76,000 is what it's forecasted, but really in FY29, if that federal funding drops off, we're, gonna, we're expecting at least a $2.8 million shortfall at that point. So that's just something for us all to be very aware of in general. Um, we're not the only transit agency who's seeing this on the horizon. Um, and it's just something we need to be cognizant of as we're having these discussions about um, transit services. You can um, put a pin in this if it's upcoming, but you had a slide as well that said that the, the main revenue source right now is actually our property taxes. And yes. so I'm wondering about all the changes in the state and property taxes and what that does. So just. It's a good question. So I, I don't. I'm trying to think how far down the road Nicole went with um, when we were developing these uh, scenarios. There could be changes to our property tax. If they make changes to how we are able to assess, right now it's 95 cents on every $1,000 in taxable valuation. Um, if the state makes changes to that, there's no changes right now in this latest batch, but if there are changes to that in the future, this is gonna change. Yeah, that, that's right. The, the legislation that just passed this, this session did not touch the transit levy. But there's clear intent to continue down the road of property tax reform That's next right. session, too. You heard a lot of this is a first step, this is a start type of language from the, the state legislature. So at this point, we don't anticipate a change to the levy. But at the end of the day, what this is showing and, and the underlying assumptions that are going into these numbers is expenses are, are far exceeding revenues. Uh, so this shows roughly about a 5% growth year over year in expenditures for status quo operations. And, <clears throat> excuse me, revenues would, would only be growing about 2%. Now, if you remember the last two years, we've had a decrease in taxable value. Uh, the last two budget years. So we would like to think, and historically, we've performed better than 2% on the property tax side. Um, but that hasn't been our case recently. So th there is some conservative numbers built in here, but we've also have good reason to budget conservatively or at least project conservatively here. All right, so the other 
um, funding projection we wanted to share tonight is if we went into a zero fare um, system. So under the top scenario, that's a no drop off in federal funding. That's our best case scenario right now. You can see we would have funding available for four years. We are, we're assuming we're going to be able to break even for those four years. Those four years are the last four years we'll have the COVID funding, the COVID relief funding available to us. Those are coinciding. Um, in addition to that increase in um, federal operating, the COVID funding has been a really a, a lifesaver um, for the community. So the, it becomes a challenge when we get into FY27. So then we start to see uh, the shortfalls um, appear. In 27, we see over a $900,000 shortfall with, with um, no decrease in federal funding. So this is the best case scenario. Um, $2.2 million shortfall forecasted in FY28. Um, 2.5 million forecasted in FY29. And again, that's if federal operating funds continue um, at the same level. Um, situation gets a little bit more bleak if there's a drop off in federal funding. Um, again, in the 900,000s in terms of a shortfall in FY27. FY28, um, it's looking more like a 3.5 million deficit. And then FY29, um, upwards of four, 3.9, uh, five um, is what we're forecasting for a shortfall with a zero fare. So clearly there's things for us to think about. Um, and, and what this slide tells me is that we do have funding for a, we do have funding for a pilot, but we're gonna need to think really long and hard about what other, if this is something that we want to continue for the community, if this is a direction we wanna head, we're gonna have to think long and hard about how we might be able to support it through other um, funding <coughs> and revenue sources in the future. Which leads me to my staff recommendation. So, um, you know, at this point, from staff's perspective, um, where we're at, especially considering where we're at with the ridership and um, and the costs associated, um, costs and the other challenges associated with all of these different enhancements, we're really our recommendation is that we would prioritize a two-year zero fare pilot. And the reasons are, first and foremost, that zero fare will benefit every single rider every single day, um, no matter what time they're riding. It's going to be a benefit for every single person. Uh, we expect ridership in to increase between 20 to 60%. Um, in the Iowa City Area Transit Study, the consultants, based on other experiences and uh, with communities not unlike ours across the country, they forecasted 40 to 60%. I bumped that down a little bit as to, to get us a little bit lower because I, I'm not quite sure about the pandemic effect, but it could be anywhere in there, but I suspect we will see, uh, we will see a significant ridership increase which would be a great thing for the community. Again, it will remove that barrier for transit use for all those people who just haven't hopped on board because they just haven't figured out the fare thing. They just didn't want to go get the fare, take the fare, don't know how to work the fare box. Um, somehow makes them nervous. Um, how easy to just hop on board um, and, and go. Um, this is one of those rare, rare community projects that will truly address climate, equity, economic objectives, livability objectives. Um, you know, it could really put Iowa City on the map. Um, we're already all over the map in terms of livability. We're always very high on the rankings, but in all honesty, the ease with which people move throughout a community is a hallmark of a great community. And <laughs> Iowa City could also be known for having a great transit system that is free and so easy to use. It's, these are the things that, that help um, make Iowa City a great place to live. It would definitely improve the passenger and driver experience. It would make boarding and um, deboarding um, quicker, um, reduce those conflicts at the fare box. We can implement it fairly quickly. Um, like I said, if a Sunday service would take 
time to implement to get the staffing um, to get things in order and, and the other uh, late night overnight that will that will also be a service that's going to take some time to plan and, and execute this one can be done fairly quickly um, we have the potential for, to forego um, 900,000 in today's cost um, for replacing the fare boxes those course will um, will rise over time and then again the 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 less conflicts at the fare box, which I already mentioned. <clears throat> so back to those other options that have been, uh, we've been percolating on and thinking about um, for, for several years to address Sunday service first, it would be challenging to staff, as I've mentioned, um, especially in the, in the staffing conditions we're at right now. It would be difficult to pilot in that um, you have to hire staff, additional staff, in order to pilot. So, you know, it, then you could come to a, a point multiple years later, maybe it's not the, the direction we want to proceed, and, and then you have this additional staff on board, and, and that could be challenging from a pilot perspective. And we generally expect a low overall ridership increase. Um, again, back to that day of the week slide, we're going to see probably half of um, Saturday's ridership. Late night on-demand service um, also has a high cost per ride. Um, we do expect relatively low ridership um, when compared to the fixed route system, um, and that will um, that will also be that will take more time to develop um, that entire project. So from our perspective, from staff's perspective right now, the timing is really ideal to consider a zero fare pilot at this time. Um, we have the COVID relief funding, uh, which is a great position um, for us to be in. We're very thankful for that federal support. Um, we are in an unfortunate and fortunate position where we have COVID ridership losses. So we have extra capacity, known capacity that we know we can, we can increase ridership with and we don't have um, any additional staffing needs or any additional buses. That was not the case when we did the study. Um, the, the price tag for this was, I think at that point, 2.3 million in annual operating costs and then about 4 million for additional buses. So we're in a different situation now. So it's. I don't want to go through another pandemic again to get into this situation, but this is um, this might be a, a really great opportunity to take advantage of some of that ridership losses and and help build that back. We would recommend an annual check-in with council. Um, the things that we'd want to discuss would be um, to review the ridership, um, what we're seeing from a ridership perspective, re review the financial forecast that we just reviewed with you. Um, determine whether to resume collecting fares and initiating fare box procurement. Those processes we will need to plan for well in advance. Um, it's not an easy thing to, it will take some time, the better part of a year if we do transition, if we were to move forward with zero fare and if we ever wanted to transition out of that pilot back into a fare-based system, we would need the time to be able to um, get the fare boxes that we need. And another thing we would want to discuss at, at these check-ins is, is really discuss funding strategies to address um, potential future shortfalls. And speaking of funding sources, so this is just a really high level um, um, quick chart just to, to identify what some of those funding sources could be. Um, they could be um, increased parking fees that could help support transit operations. There could be changes, uh, changes to or use of property taxes to help support operating or capital expenses. There could potentially be a utility tax or a sales tax that could help support um, operations or capital expenses. 
And the last one I wanted to mention is community partnerships. So this is something that other communities have leveraged um, in their own communities to help support um, Zero Fare. Missoula, Montana is one example. Um, they have a very strong community partnership and I think their um, their entire Zero Fare launch was, um, well not their entire, but it was, it was made possible by partnerships within their communities. Um, so businesses, organizations that found the value in providing an easy zero fare transit system, and they have been running it for some time, successfully running their service for some time. All right, so if zero fare, if we were um, to to continue um, down the path of zero fare, this is kind of what um, the, the launch sequence might look like. The completed phases brings you basically up into this point today where we're discussing, uh, we're having our work session discussion. But uh, the next steps would be in July, if, if this is the direction we want to move to, we would go back to the MPO and ask for um, a funding formula discussion to make sure that, um, especially within this pilot period, that we aren't going to lose federal funding at this time, that, that it remains stable. So we would like to have that discussion on the MPO board level. Um, we could plan, like I said, we could transit, we can make this transition relatively quickly. We could transition the summer or fall to a zero fare system. It is one of the rare big changes that we can make in the transit system that we can do quickly, and it's hard to do things quickly in transit. So, um, so summer or fall is when we could expect to launch. Um, we would schedule a one-year check-in. Next summer, we would come back and talk through those items that I just discussed, funding, how the ridership's going, um, um, just have a general discussion about where things are at, what the funding forecasts look like. And then we would also make plans for the next, for the next year um, and have, again, another check-in in the summer of 2025 and determine how to proceed from that point. So that concludes the presentation. Thank you all um, for letting me go on about transit. I'm always very excited to do so. Um, and I'd be happy to answer any questions um, that you have. Uh, thank you very much for your presentation. Um, quick, do you anticipate any uh, difficulties with the MPOJC discussion about the funding formula? Because that seems like if that goes poorly, that could be a, an obstacle or a, a thing that would trip us up. Great question. We've had a preliminary discussion already. So we've um, I met with um, the MPO. The MPO hosted a meeting between us, um, uh, Corville Transit, and Canbus, and. Everybody wants more money always, right? Um, mm -hmm. But I think everybody, um, the general tenor of the discussion was that nobody wanted to lose money. Um, so I think there's, I think there's definitely some opportunity um, for discussion here. And if we're presenting it in such a way uh, to carry us through through this zero fare um, and maintaining the funding that's already there in mm -hmm. terms of um, proportions, I think we would have a good, um, we would get a good shot at concurrence with that. Are there any other parts of the funding proposals, grants, anything else that's based on fare that uh, ridership counts could substitute for? Could we be facing any other um, things that might trip us up in that way? And I don't believe trip us up. Um, there are opportunities in my mind, um, depending on how much we increase ridership and how our performance number go numbers go up, but there are two more stick categories where we could potentially get bonus funding. So I would like to look a little bit more into if, if we start increasing our ridership, we're getting this 20, 30, 40%, um, what would it take for the community, the greater metro area to, to bring more? Money in. and I'm not saying that's a done deal, but that's something that I, I, I want to look a little bit more into. Um, 
barring, I think the, as Jeff mentioned, the question marks funding levels uh, in my mind are, you know, property taxes. What happens with, um, what happens on the state level with property taxes in terms of transit funding? That's not sure how that's going to pan out. But I think federally, I think that is really the only, the local distribution formula is the last piece that, um, that we need to really seriously look at. And it seems like in many ways the long-term success of this program is going to hinge on increases in ridership. Um, and then so how will that be counted in such a way that should there be a skeptic of this, we could say, because we won't have the fair counter, right, which is a pretty hard and fast way. So what would those ridership counts be look like um, if somebody did have questions, like are those the federal government wanted to audit those counts to make sure they were accurate and complete? Um, how would how does that work? That's a great question. We ha we will be required to so we're going to maintain the fare boxes in the fare in the in the buses for the duration of the pilot. We would not we would not get rid of them, and so we will still count on them. So, for example, on election day, um, we do zero fare on election day. So we cover up we cover them up, and then we have um, we have a button that we push to count ridership. We need that ridership data, and we will collect it. <laughs> because, sure, um, it is required. It's a, it's a requirement of our federal funding as well that we have that ridership data. Um, if this is something that the community would like to pursue long-term, we will probably move to a system more like CAN buses system. They also have to report numbers and they don't have ridership. And you've all seen CAN buses. There can be crush loads of people getting on those at, at one time. Um, they have, uh, we all have tablets um, on our bus. That's, um, they're synchromatics tablets. They're our AVL system. The drivers log in and log out. It allows us to see from a dispatch perspective where the buses are. It sends that information to the app. Um, there is um, counting, uh, software, if you will, that add-ons that we can buy, so they that um, that the drivers could use that to collect data, and then Canbus also has automatic passenger counters over their doors, so they use a mm. dual combination. And I'm not sure how they reconcile them, but that's something I'm very interested um, right. in finding out about. So we're, we plan on meeting with Canbus and um, and figuring out a little bit about their system. But I have heard that they really, it's. The way that they're doing it is really effective, and they really like it. So we will still continue. Uh, we will still continue to count. We will still have ridership numbers. We will still have that data um, uh, that we can make available to anybody in the public. Excellent. Thank you so much. Yep. Thank you. I think one other point that that certainly I've made in public events where we've talked about transit is. <clears throat> If we were to do this, then Iowa City becomes a zero-fare city. I mean, CAMBUS is already zero-fare. I think having both systems zero-fare makes a much more coherent statement about Iowa City as a transit city. Um, so I think there's that. I mean, it is interesting. CAMBUS is, you know, coming from the Bay Area, it's, it's really almost equivalent to what, what I experienced in the Bay Area. And it has very high, it's serving students who are living in a high density, uh, for the most part, you know, parts of Iowa City. So it, you know, the buses, that's also why it reminds me of San Francisco, the buses are crowded. Um, but yeah, I really do like the idea of Iowa City being known as a transit fare city, whether you're riding Iowa City Transit or CAM bus, I think that, that says a lot about transit as a priority here. And then all the other reasons, of course, I think make perfect sense. I, I know in my experience, bus, bus drivers have a hard job, you know, collecting fares as well as driving the vehicle. Mm -hmm. So getting that off their plate, um, I think is a huge benefit to the driver, which, you know, it's a hard enough job without 
worrying about making sure people are paying their fare and the actual paying of the fare and so forth. So I remember riding in Brazil where they had a separate person on the bus collecting the fares from the driver, Interesting. Uh, which I thought, well, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, just taking that off their level, you know, their responsibilities, I think would really enhance the, um, you know, the experience of the driver. And then the bus stops, you mentioned that, you know, I've also tried to emphasize it's, you know, taking the bus is also either a walk or a bike ride to the bus. So what's that experience like? And uh, certainly the bus stops. I, you know, had many experiences where, you know, you're kind of you, you're hypersensitive to time when you're waiting for a bus. So trying to make that as pleasant as a experience as possible, I think is is another important piece. And you know, I'm sure council can ask a lot more questions. Um, one thing I wanted to know is. When do you need an answer from us, time-wise? Because we saw your mm -hmm. kind of saw your timeline at the bottom. Sooner rather than later, okay. if, if you'd like to meet that timeline, um, we would. Like I said, we would. Um, if we receive the direction to proceed, um, the first agenda item would be to have those go back and have those follow-up conversations with Corville Transit, um, with, um, with CANBUS, um, come to some agreement about the funding formula, um, and then take that to the, the MPO board for formal review, and that would be in, in July, I think the 12th or the 13th. Kent is here, he's not here. Um, so, so we have at least one more uh, work session that we can maybe follow up on this, or we can come back to this item. Yeah, you, you could schedule a, another work session, um, or we could we could put a resolution on the formal meeting if you'd like to, uh, you know, have a formal vote on this and kind of that historic record of of this pilot. That's fine too. We could take that approach. I don't know that a resolution is required, but um, there's there's a good. We'd like to get this launched. Our our target would be before the school year. I think that's a that's a good target to have. But there's a lot of work to do in terms of communication and marketing prep um, uh, as well, and we'll need every bit of it. So we'll probably start working towards that um, after today without making any concrete decisions until you feel comfortable giving us that green light. And maybe I can get a temperature of the uh, council. Are you? Oh. Sorry. I think as far as the pilot, I don't have really any hesitancy. Um, you know, it is something that we would be setting the expectation that could be reversed if it didn't go as we would hope. Um, and I just think there, it's hard to imagine a project with as much strategic plan alignment um, mm -hmm. as something like this. So I, and based on, you know, an hour and 40 minutes of information from, from Darian, I feel comfortable saying, yes, let's pursue this now. I also strongly support the pilot. All right. I do too. Great. Um, so I think we'll go ahead with a resolution, and we'll probably have it on our next agenda or, or one of our future agendas. Thank you so much. Thank you for okay. your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Very exciting. Mm -hmm. It is exciting. All right. We're going to move on to our... Um, we're going to try to do this right now. All right. <laughs> Four minutes. Yeah, so we're going to move on to info, information packets, uh, May, May 4th. Oh, I'm sorry, yes. 
Uh, maybe clarification of agenda items first. All right, May 4th uh, information packet. The press IP release relating to the beautiful yeah. art. IP3, <laughs> yeah, it's gonna be our 2023 Iowa Small Business Community of the Year award that we received and we um, actually um, on Saturday received that um, by the SBA members and so we're gonna ask council at the end of this work session to uh, gather around and take a picture. Yes, this is a huge accomplishment for this community. So, yeah. Nice. May 11th. I'll point out that IP7 May 20th um, will be at the Iowa City Farmers Market, mm -hmm. Mayor Alter and I. I could just... Oh, Mayor Pro Tem. <laughs> All right, Mayor Pro Tem, Alter, and I. Um, and that time will be 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. I noticed the memo from um, our climate action coordinator, and I don't know that that needs, I think that's for our information. We're planning to pursue those. Is that right? Jeff? Yeah, it was something last time Sarah presented to you, you had asked her to go back to the Climate Action Commission and, and have this discussion. So she's just reporting back. We don't need specific direction. Looks good. It's exciting. Yep. And I do plan uh, with Mayor Pro Tem and Jeff to have kind of some of those um, ARPA fund dollars, um, some of those, I would say, low hanging fruit or uh, some of the ones that people are waiting for answers to kind of get it on our agenda sooner rather than later. So yeah, we'll be working on that. We're pretty close to having the, the yeah. quarterly update. Is that in June? Uh, yeah, the quarterly update will be coming up here in May. Or yeah, June. Yeah. Sorry. Yep. And I just know there's a few things on there that um, I think the council can um, talk about. So we'll work some of that in. Great. All right. And anything else for May 11th? We're going to move over to USG. Yes. Welcome, welcome. Hi, Council. <clears throat> Sorry, I was a little late. I was dropping off my roommate at the airport. Um, yeah, <laughs> that almost time every year. Oh yeah, every other student is basically gone from campus except for the ones living here in town. Um, so great parking, but the route to Cedar Rapids is really busy. Um, uh, so overall, not much news coming from USG. Keaton and I. Um, current GR director and former city liaison are working on runner's guide to present to you guys, obviously, and to have data ready. And then we're working on a WeScap housing program that we've ran mm -hmm. multiple years. It goes to the Iowa House Hotel. So that's that's in the works from us, mostly. Um, and then UIWA wants to increase non-student undergraduate tuition by 1% and a $305 increase from in-state residents. I got this from the Daily Island, so that's university news. But not much else is really happening besides a bunch of construction. So <laughs> thank you guys so much. All right. Well, thank you. A good rest to all the students that are taking off this summer. Yes. All right. Any updates on boards, uh, any commissions, assignments, or anything like that? Oh, just um, quickly, um, Rachel and I participated in the Disability Committee, uh, a Zoom meeting, and uh, 
there was a really excellent presentation, I thought, by the uh, Joint Emergency Management Commission uh, on uh, storm preparedness, uh, including information about uh, mechanisms they have in place for persons with disabilities, which I hadn't really ever thought of that. You hear the storm sirens, but what if you're deaf or, or those kinds mm. of things? So it was really an excellent uh, presentation, and with all of our recent uh, severe storm warnings we've had, uh, I think it, it would be a good presentation um, to, to have either for our one of our work sessions, or even to um, suggest for a joint entities meeting. Uh, I, I think it, it would be good for, for people to know those kinds of things. Um, uh, we talked about some upcoming dates for the disability uh, awareness events. I don't have those dates in front of me, Rachel. Do you recall some of those dates? I think they're coming up more in the, in the fall, I believe. And um, But keep keep your eyes out for that, because that's always a good event, and usually on the Pet Mall and, and proclamations and things. So that's all. Great. And that might be, at least from what I can hear, a good presentation for the joint entities yes, meeting. Yes, it would be very good for that. Yeah. Any other updates? All right. Well, we are adjourned uh, until our formal meeting at 7, 6 p.m. Six. <laughs>